Welcome to another edition of Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org on this Sunday morning. Emmanuel Barbari with you. With the country so bitterly divided, the word of the last couple of weeks has been bipartisanship. How can two bodies of Congress on both sides of the aisle that are so interested in partisan talking points rather than constituents and common sense reforms for the American people get something done in a time of crisis? Happy to have John Davenport back on the show, Fordham philosophy professor who's penned several op-eds about these topics. Brought him on a couple of weeks ago. Great discussion on voting rights and how everyone can have faith in the American election system. Some reforms there to make sure that transparency is of paramount focus. A lot of the same themes here about how accountability has kind of run away from the congressional bodies. Some reforms that he believes in, some of the impediments that are standing in the way currently, an in-depth conversation on what's really preventing progress and how that can be resurrected moving forward. Here's John Davenport on Fordham Conversations. Well, you would think that this, along perhaps with an infrastructure bill in a month or two, would be pretty good candidates if any legislation can get bipartisan support in Congress. It would be these kinds of bills. But even here, uh, it seems like it's very unlikely. There are just so many incentives uh, on both major parties not to compromise and not to be seen to be compromising with their opponents because of the bitterness of, of the divide within the public. People seem, in many cases, more pleased to see their uh, representatives in Congress just refusing or trying to stop or stymie the opposing party rather than get anything positive done. So those incentives are really pointing the other way. And unfortunately, I fear the Democrats are probably going to have to use uh, a procedure called reconciliation, which you can only use for budget bills in the Senate to get this rescue bill passed. Do you think that is what the majority of Americans do want to see? Because there are certainly the people who are hyper-partisan and, and really do relish in the fact that the Democrats can go extreme to one way, the Republicans can go extreme to the other. And as long as they're sticking up for their particular values, that is what will get them through the day. But it could be exhausting for the vast majority of Americans. And I saw a poll recently, a 78% public approval is for this American rescue package, or at least the notion of getting that much in terms of stimulus. So do you think it's right. exhausting for a majority of Americans? I absolutely agree. And I think a number of polls have shown that at least two thirds of the American public would like to see bipartisan bills and compromise in Congress much more routinely than we see it. The problem is that it's the extreme wings of both parties that are really controlling them through especially primary elections. So we're probably going to have to reform the way that primary elections work, among other things, in order to, well, to create more incentive for people in Congress and especially the Senate to compromise. Uh, on, on bills like these. I mean, if if you went through a list of, you know, 10 or, or, or 15 of, uh, of people's top wish lists uh, for things that Congress might do, you'd probably find that even in the Senate, maybe, you know, there's 60, 65 percent uh, of senators would support it. But the problem is that you don't necessarily get uh, the leadership on board with those particular bills or priorities. Uh, because, uh, you know, they can make a bigger splash by doing something else that's more dramatic or that, uh, you know, is seen as more partisan. So it, it 
it's those kinds of things that get them more publicity and more notoriety. So that's another part of the problem is is just the way that leadership in both houses of Congress controls what can reach the floor. So there are you know possible solutions to that as well. But you're right, most most Americans would like to see Congress work much better, and it's really baffling to most Americans why that doesn't happen. I mean, you know, most of us don't spend or can't spend all of our time trying to figure out the intricacies of procedure in Washington. For sure. The common sense thing would be to meet somewhere in the middle, but that, of course, doesn't satisfy the, the hyperpartisan needs per se. You mentioned a lot of reforms, and I do want to get to those with you and how we can resurrect a situation like this and, and have better days in terms of negotiating legislation in the Congress. But Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One observation for me is that certainly a lot of Congress is is corporate and corporate controlled. And you have, at least to me, it feels like DNR is simply a label that is absolving congressmen and women of their duties to serve and to work together, which is the way the body was designed. And while they certainly have their set of values, it almost feels like the faction or the party or the label is Mm -hmm. absolving them of, okay, let's get something done. Let's serve the constituents. And that's their excuse because of the values. I'm not sure if you feel the same way. Yeah, I I actually think you're, you're completely right that, uh, uh, loyalty to party uh, and to you know what's seen as its uh, uh, most important priorities in, in any given period in Congress is uh, is is put a you know premium on that as opposed to working across the aisle and getting things done. We always see their short-lived initiatives. You know, people from uh, from different uh, parties trying to work together for a while. There's a group of senators right now who are trying to do that. But we've seen past efforts like this really fizzle out pretty quickly. You had the Gang of Eight, you know, who passed an immigration bill reform, believe it or not, uh, through the Senate even back when George Bush was president. Uh, and um, uh, and yet, uh, you know, they got so massively attacked, uh, uh, you know, by their base, by the most extreme members of their own parties who, you know, threatened them with primary challenges that, uh, you know, they, they've fizzled out. I mean, that that kind of effort, you know, to, to put together a small caucus of, of people from from both major parties to push particular reforms usually doesn't doesn't last very long because of these greater pressures. One thing that I do think would would help, I mean, it could be done very easily just by changing rules uh, within the Senate and House, uh, is to reserve a few weeks each session for what are called in other countries members' bills. Um, by that I mean that uh, people in the Senate, for example, you could have um, a group of 20 senators who are Republican and 20 Democrats together say, well, you know, there's enough support across the aisle for this particular bill, say an infrastructure bill that's designed already from the beginning as a compromise that includes a lot of what both parties want. Uh, And they can bring that to the floor, even if the Senate leadership uh, in those two parties doesn't approve the way they've written the bill. Uh, so empower, you know, the rank and file within the Senate, and this might even be more important in the House, actually, uh, to go around the leadership uh, in bringing some things to a floor vote. Just a few each session. You don't have to make most of the agenda uh, controlled this way. But that would provide a way, you know, for things to enjoy 
you know, a substantial chunk uh, of support on both sides of the aisle to get to an actual vote. And that's not what happens right now. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the majority uh, of the majority party, you know, if you're talking about uh, 60% of, of Democrats in the House right now, right, who, you know, have a majority of the House as a whole, I mean, that might represent, that might be members of the House who represent you know, say only 35% of the American public. Uh, if we can't bring anything to a vote in the House that doesn't have, you know, the support of a majority of Democrats, then um, yeah, you're you're really limiting extremely what can even reach a final vote. So so that's one just sort of internal rule uh, fix that might unstick the uh, the the clogs in the system to a small extent. John Davenport with us on Fordham Conversations. You just struck an important note in that people represent different areas of the country, different percentages of the country. And there's almost this herd mentality nowadays of, okay, if you vote to impeach the president, you're to be primaried. If you don't vote for our package that is popular with our Democratic base, you should be primaried or you should be exiled, essentially. And Joe Manchin has come under a lot of scrutiny lately senator from west virginia essentially who who votes both ways and and right now it's almost like how could you not vote with the democrats on this bill but some people fail to recognize that it's extremely difficult for a democrat to even win in the state of west virginia so in how can that be solved in your mind well, you're right, you know, that we need to change the role that money plays in politics to the extent that, I mean, this really drives television advertising, more advertising these days on social media. So if members of Congress think that, uh, you know, they're going to be uh, subject to a massive advertising blitz attacking them whenever they reach across the aisle and try to compromise with people uh, on the in the other major party, that's a huge disincentive. And Joe Manchin could face things like that, as Liz Cheney has in Wyoming, uh, for standing with uh, the majority of the country and saying, well, look, you know, the, uh, the election was legitimate and we should certify these results. And what happened on, um, uh, on the 6th of January should not be tolerated. And, you know, those who incited the riot should be condemned. Whenever uh, members of Congress are, you know, willing to take a principled stand, if they're then subject to this kind of massive attack, uh, then, you know, then that uh, uh, really deters bipartisanship. Uh, so there's, you know, reforms that can reduce the amount of donations that campaigns can receive and third party advertising spending uh, on political issues. That would really help. Uh, but in the case of uh, uh, states like West Virginia or cases where you have yeah, a Democrat in a largely red state or even a Republican in a, you know, maybe a swing state that's a little bit more blue. Uh, you, we need to have a system that makes sure that, you know, it's not just a small fraction of those states, 15, 20 percent who routinely vote in primary elections, who control all the power there. Uh, and so, yeah, imagine that you had something like an open primary system. There are different versions of this in West Virginia. Uh, that would probably help Joe Manchin uh, be able to retain his his seat. I mean, he's unlikely to be primaried in this case from you know very soon uh, on the um, 
on the Democrat side, uh, but he could well face a very extreme opponent uh, on the Republican side in the next election. So that's the the, the, the heart of the problem um, for those people who are facing you know primary challenges fueled by this big money. Uh, is that you know it's such a small slice of their electorate of those they represent in Congress who you know control the outcome of those low turnout you know early cycle elections. How would that open primary system work? Can you can you flesh that out for us? Yeah, I mean there are different versions of it. Uh, usually, the, the most familiar one to people is that. Uh, you can uh, register, affiliate with the party uh, on the day of the primary election. Uh, usually, you know, then unaffiliated voters can come in uh, and vote in a, in a primary. I mean, there are uh, you know, even larger sort of versions of it where you basically the primary election almost acts like a first round in a runoff election where, you know, you, you see – what candidates from across a whole bunch of parties get the top two or three most votes, and then they vie for uh, you know the final election on uh, the main election day in November. Uh, but yeah, the more familiar version of, of an open primary is the one in which uh, people who are not yet affiliated with one party or, or another can can come and vote uh, you know, in the primary election for that party on on the given day. Uh, and so what this does is it massively increases turnout. I mean, there are other things we could do, you know, to increase turnout in primary elections, more civics education, more incentives for voters, uh, you know, maybe even some people have suggested paying people to vote during the primary. I, I don't think Americans would necessarily go for that or required voting, which some countries have. But there are lots of ways that we can increase turnout in these early, you know, these often are in the spring, right, primary elections for, for both parties. Uh, and so some states have experimented with this, and um, uh, the results are modest but encouraging. And uh, that can really just massively help increase the turnout so that members of Congress are more worried about whether they can win the election in the, you know, to the general public in the fall than rather than they can please just the most vocal and most extreme, sometimes militant aspects of their base in the spring. Um, ending gerrymandering would also help with this. So the primary system is only part of the problem. With gerrymandering, you just mentioned that these ridiculous districts are drawn that end up being safe for decades upon decades, and really it's the party in power at the state legislature level that gets to determine mm -hmm. how elections go for the foreseeable future based on who takes control in that given election. If you were to reform something like gerrymandering, what would that entail? Would it be permanent districts or would they be arbitrary based on population? How would that be determined? Right. I mean, they will have to be adjusted after uh, every census that we do every 10 years uh, because um, you know, we require – it's actually a Supreme Court decision in the 60s that did this. We require that every district has pretty close to equal number uh, of uh, residents within it because we want one person, one vote uh, to be the standard in this country. Uh, so we will have to adjust after the census. But the district lines can be drawn uh, by an impartial board uh, that is uh, you know, not controlled by members of uh, the state government uh, and that operates using impartial geometrical rules as much as possible. There are even you know, computer algorithms that can do this pretty well. 
uh, I mean, to some extent, we, we may want uh, to allow the board to adjust to respect county lines, you know, boundaries where you've got a river or a lake or a mountain uh, or, you know, just to try to draw districts in a way that um, uh, keep uh, traditionally uh, connected communities together, say if they're part of a city and so on. But the, the ultimate goal should be to try to, you know, create more competitive districts to the extent you can. I mean, sometimes you have some areas that are, are very heavily leaning towards one party or the other. But we want to create uh, more districts where there's competition, because if we don't, uh, if we stick with a system where over 80% of uh, seats in the House, for example, uh, are really safe, we, we already know, even long before the election, which party is almost certain to win them, then again, all of the emphasis shifts to the primary election. That's where the real contest is. Uh, even in the Bronx, uh, where we are at Fordham University, uh, there was a primary challenge uh, in the spring, uh, which re you know, removed the, the Democrat who'd represented uh, the Bronx district uh, for, for many years. And uh, now we have a new representative who won the election in the fall. Uh, but the outcome was really controlled you know, by a very small number of voters during the primary season. Uh, a lot of people in that congressional district probably didn't even realize the primary election was going on or how significant it would be. So there's an example close to home. That really underscores the importance of your primary election reform as well, given that mm -hmm. we essentially knew whether it was gaining seats or losing a couple of seats, which ended up happening uh, in eventuality in the fall. We knew that the Democratic Party would control the House of Representatives ahead of time. How problematic is that in your mind in terms of depressing turnout as well on the Republican side? Well, this is where uh, another reform can help, um, especially with, uh, with some of the larger races like the Senate and the presidency. Uh, but even in House races, if you allow people to rank choice their candidates in the election, uh, which is sometimes also called an automatic runoff, then you also may increase turnout, especially in the general election in this case. So uh, you would have not just uh, you know Democrats and Republicans voting for their preferred candidate, but you would have people voting for various third-party candidates as well who might get a small slice of the electorate supporting them, Libertarian candidates, Green Party candidates, and so on. But that also tends to increase the turnout. Uh, because those people can rank, you know, their third party candidate as their first choice. Uh, and when that person inevitably, at the moment at least, doesn't uh, place in the top two, their vote is reassigned uh, if they've listed, you know, one of the major party candidates as their second choice. So that also helps increase turnout. Uh, of course, it you know, would still have been unlikely in this case for a Republican to win the Bronx. You would get a much higher turnout. Uh, and that would be true across more House districts throughout the country and some Senate races. And so because of the larger turnout in the general election, you get more competitive races overall. The result is that those members of Congress now facing you know, more competitive um, general elections will have to think about you know, how to appeal uh, to the whole electorate of their state, rather than, again, just that small extreme base that controls the primary elections. So all of these are ways of taking the pressure off uh, the, you know, the earliest stage uh, of choice in the primary, uh, which you know, is one of the big drivers of partisanship. John Davenport, our guest here on Fordham Conversations, another 
hot topic in terms of congressional reform has been the filibuster. And that seems to be a really popular thing among Democrats right now. And they are in the majority in the Senate. But two members of their party that caucus their way, but also cross over from time to time, Joe Manchin, aforementioned, and and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, both said they would not support it. So that does not seem to be happening anytime soon. What are the pros of eliminating the filibuster? Let's start there. Oh, the filibuster. Uh, I call this part filibuster so crazy. (laughs) It's just unbelievable. Uh, Although I certainly understand why those two senators uh, don't want to just eliminate it right away. It was made into um, a kind of a buzzword during the last election season. And uh, so many Republicans predicted, oh, Democrats will try to get rid of the filibuster. And that's the only tool we have to stop them. So, you know, a lot of people on the Republican side may not have a really much uh, understanding of what the filibuster is. Just think, oh, well, it's a tool we can use to stop them. We have to keep that. Uh, that would be a sign of hyperpartisanship if they got rid of it. Uh, but actually, it would not. Uh, it would just make the Senate a, a little less inequitable or a little less unfair than it already is. Uh, just to explain, the filibuster is just an internal Senate rule that requires at the moment, most bills, most kinds of legislation to get at least 60% of senators, 60 senators, given we have 100 in the, in the Senate, uh, in order to pass most kinds of laws. And, and so what that does is um, it, it means that the Democrats, who now represent uh, about 57% of the American public, um, so 50 senators, but because the population of different states are so different across the country, uh, you have to add to that 57% of Americans represented by the Democrats in the Senate, you've got to add 10 more Republicans. So that means that you're probably going to need senators representing more than two-thirds of the American public uh, to get a law passed, uh, which is almost impossible in the hyperpartisan atmosphere that we were just discussing. So, yeah, I mean, the filibuster is not something that was intended in the original design of the Constitution. It was something that was added along the way uh, in order to really to kind of gum up the works, um, supposedly in the name of states' rights. Uh, it basically made it possible for a small minority of the country to veto. Uh, many uh, needed reforms. And that's only become more extreme over time. It was rarely used, uh, hardly at all in the 19th century, rarely throughout the first half of the 20th century. And then uh, in the last three decades, it's ramped up incredibly to the point where now it's literally just routine. Uh, The Senate doesn't even try to pass something unless uh, there's a a vote of 60%, the 60 senators, to move the bill forward to a full discussion. So it's almost like every bill is routinely filibustered. Uh, or that's the presumption. So that's basically the, you know, the, the central problem uh, in the entire uh, legislative system now. The positive of the filibuster, of course, the counter would be that you could have one party in consistent rule, essentially, and, and do what they would like just with a simple majority vote. And there would be nothing to stop that from transpiring. And you could really dismantle some of the fundamental institutions just by a simple majority vote. So 
how could that be prevented in a sense? Or what is the counter to that if you were to eliminate the filibuster? Because it seems like it could go on a trajectory, especially if it remains this hyperpartisan, where significant reforms are made and then they're just undone five to 10 years from that. Well, that is true. Uh, it does mean that you could have um, more sort of flip-flopping, if you will, between um, you know, one session of Congress and another because uh, it would uh, it would be easier to undo something that the last majority did. Uh, the main answer, I think, though, is that in a system where there was no filibuster, where you needed only 51 senators to pass something, uh, remembering again that if at least if uh, those 51 are Democrats, they'll probably represent almost 60 percent of the country. Uh, given the pop, the larger population of, of, of states uh, represented these days by Democrats, then uh, you will see uh, the incentives on the major parties shift. Uh, the parties adjust always to the circumstances they're working within. So if they're in that kind of a situation, they're not going to sort of say, well, we're going to stick to our current policies and practices just as they are, even though we're losing every election. And so we can never do anything because, you know, the other party keeps controlling uh, a bare majority of the Senate. They're going to adjust in order to try to win back a majority. I mean, that's what would happen. Uh, same if we added, say, Puerto Rico or D.C. as a state or gave them congressional representation. That wouldn't mean that, oh, well, now the Democrats you know, control Congress permanently. It would mean that you know, the, their opponents, the Republicans, would shift to try to win votes in, 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 those, in those areas. Uh, and so I, I don't think that uh, ending the filibuster would, would imply or, uh, or cause you know, one-party domination for any length of time. What it would do uh, is enable Americans to see that there's a real consequence and result uh, from uh, election victories. Uh, people these days are incredibly puzzled when you know they see, wow, we elected you know the president, uh, we control both houses of Congress, and yet uh, we, nothing that we wanted to to, to do, uh, nothing that we were promised, or very little of what we were promised in the last election, actually comes to fruition. Uh, so then people, you know, get frustrated and alienated. The participation goes down uh, because people, you know, don't see why, why was our agenda not passed? Uh, because, again, you know, the arcane mysteries of the filibuster are not, you know, common dinner table conversation for most Americans. Let me get you out on this. If one party were to add a couple of states and, and add two senators for those states in turn, and four total senators, and then significantly reform the way elections were done. Would that be a scenario where the filibuster would be missed in your mind? Or would it be something where it would just incentivize voting, which I, I tend to agree with, actually? Yeah, uh, I think once people saw uh, in a system with no filibuster that, well, Congress was really getting something done, you know, that uh, while these elections really have consequences, look, when our party wins, you know, a whole raft of things get passed, uh, as you see more in parliamentary systems around the world. For example, in Great Britain, uh, if your party wins, you pretty much know that their top four or five things are going to get through parliament. Uh, it's very unlikely that all of that's going to get stymied in, uh, you know, in, in one part of the process. Then people would say, well, I really better turn out to vote in these elections because 
the party that controls Congress is uh, that that's going to determine a lot of things that happen here. Changes in the tax law, uh, you know, in our trade system, in the education system, in health care. Uh, maybe they'll do something about immigration. You know, maybe there'll be attempts to uh, uh, to try to, uh, you know, to pass, for example, um, automatic uh, background checks for gun purchases, whatever it is that the people care about, they'll see that now, look, I mean, you know, it's going to turn on, on which party uh, wins Congress. Uh, and so that also would drive turnout up uh, and partisanship down. So really getting rid of the filibuster is probably good for the health of the whole uh, political mood of the country and, and the, uh, you know, the ecosystem of, of our politics. Big thanks to John Davenport for joining the show. Really enjoyed the conversation and very fascinating how the next couple of weeks will progress and the next couple of years for that matter when it comes to some of the reforms that he suggested and whether they'll even be on the table in this session of Congress. If you missed any of today's interview, you can go to WFUV.org to catch the full conversation. Until next week, for WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Emmanuel Barbari.